One of the things I desperately want is for hope to be a defining characteristic of my life. I want hope in some ways to influence everything I say and everything I do. And with hope, I don't mean some sort of far-fetched dream we wish would come true. You know, like I, I wish we'd actually get cold and snow this winter. Now, when I, mean, when I say hope, I mean the, the well-grounded, well-founded assurance God will do what He said He will do. The kind of hope the Bible talks about, and it produces the sort of an anticipation or an expectation. We expect or we anticipate God doing what He has said He will do. I want to have that sort of hopeful expectation in every area of my life. I want to pray and hope. Psalm chapter 5 verse 3, the psalmist says he's going to direct his prayers to the Lord in the morning and then he's going to look up. And it pictures he's going to pray and then look up expecting God's answer, anticipating God is going to to answer his prayer almost immediately. And I want to pray that way. I want to preach in hope. I want to, to have an expectation every time I stand and declare God's word. I want to have a sense of expectation. God is going to work through me. And he is going to save the lost, to restore the prodigal, to heal broken hearts, to set captives free, to open spiritually blind eyes, to raise the spiritually dead to new life in Christ, and to help believers grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I want to live in hope. I want to have such an expectation of God working in me, through me, and for me, that everywhere I go, no matter where I am, that I go with eyes that are open and expecting God is going to send somebody my way. Somebody I'm going to encounter that I can help in some way draw them closer to Christ to encourage them, to strengthen, to do something for them so God would work through me to benefit or to bless or to help them. I want to give hope. In an overly general sense, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who refresh you and there are those who drain you. There are those who encourage you and there are those who discourage you. There are those who inspire hope in you, and there are those who leave you despairing of anything. I want to be the kind of person that refreshes, encourages, and inspires hope in others. So my desire to be a person of hope motivates me to pray our church would be a place of hope. And our sign says that we are a a beacon of hope. And my prayer is that this would be more than a cutesy sort of saying, but a reality. But truly we would be a, a beacon of hope in our community. And so for me, as I pray for this to be a reality, there are at least three specific requests I pray. One is that God would make us a house of prayer. No matter what else we do as a church, I want us to be a praying church. Not, not in a sort of a perfunctory sort of way, but pray as a priority. That no matter what else we do, we're going to pray. But that if that means the sermon is shorter because we pray longer, then so be it. We're going to pray. And pray with a passion. Again, not just God, but truly pouring out our hearts to God. I pray that God would answer our prayers. I pray for God to answer the cries of our hearts as we pour out to Him every time we gather. I pray God would hear our prayers and answer in specific, in awesome, and in undeniably God-like way. So all of us who see those requests answered would have to say, that was God. He heard my prayer. He answered my cry. And then I do pray that God would make us a beacon of hope. And my prayer here is twofold. First, for us to have a culture of hope. And what I mean by a culture of hope is that each one of us, that we call this our church home, that we come 
expecting. We come with a sense of anticipation that, that no church, when we gather, whether it's Sunday school, whether it's Sunday morning, whether it's Wednesday night, we aren't coming just because we're supposed to. We aren't coming to check a box. We come with a desire to meet with God and an anticipation, expectation. God is going to do something in me, in our church, in this day. It's not just something we do, but God is going to work in us. And second... For the people of our community to know this is a place where they can come to find hope, help, and healing through Christ. That's it. People would know truly what it says on the sign out there about being a beacon of hope. They would know that's real. When you go to that church, things change. You will find hope, you will find help, and you will find healing. In Christ. And the key to hope in all its forms. Is Christ. Finding it in Christ. It is the life and the death of Jesus. Which gives us hope. That's what this season is all about. Hope fulfilled. In the Old Testament. God gave promises of a Messiah to come. Matthew is the beginning of the Messiah has come. That hope has been fulfilled. And Jesus is meant to be a source of hope for all of us in our lives. I want us to look at a passage that speaks about this. Turn to Isaiah chapter 9. It should be page 523 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Verse 1, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in our vexation when the first he lightly afflicted this land of Zebulon, the land of Naphtali, and after did more grievously afflict her the way of the sea beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them the light has shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased, and not increased the joy they joy before thee according to the joy of the harvest. And as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder. The rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise. And his garments rolled in blood. But this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The title of the message is Jesus, our hope, our source of hope. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Lord, we want to be a people of hope. The world around us largely is not hopeful. But we ought to be because of Jesus and who He is and what He's done. This season just reminds us that You are a God who keeps His promises. You are a God who does all He says He would do. Stir within us, Lord, a deep and abiding hope. Let us live constantly with expectation that You're going to do something in us and through us and for us. You're going to keep Your Word and we're going to see it come to pass. 
The psalmist says that he would experience the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Lord, let us have that sort of a hope all the time in our lives. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. I can speak your words and your ways for your glory. Use this time that we have to draw us closer to you, Father. You know our hearts. You know the burdens that we have. Help us to be able to, for this time, lay them aside so that we can have ears to hear and hearts to obey. Let your Holy Spirit take the word and sink it deep into our hearts that it would bring forth good fruit for your glory. Have your way in all things, God. Have your way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope is the main thrust of this passage. The people of, of Judah and Jerusalem were facing a severe crisis. They were about to be attacked by the Syrian kingdom and the northern kingdom of Israel. Now for years, the kingdoms of Syria and northern Israel had been bitter enemies, but the imminent threat of the land of Assyria had caused them to form an alliance. And the that alliance between Syria and northern Israel had gathered together and they had urged Judah to join the alliance as well, but they refused. So as a result, the coalition decided to launch an invasion against Judah, set up a siege around the capital in Jerusalem. The goal was to conquer the nation, set up a puppet king who would support their rebellion against the Assyrian Empire. In chapter 8, everything looked hopeless. A spirit of anguish and distress gripped the hearts of the people. They were living in a war-torn nation and felt completely helpless. Most of the nation had already fallen to the Assyrians who were sweeping across the land, conquering everything in their sight. This was a dark and dismal day for the people of Judah. And it was to these people this message came. And it was a message of deliverance. God would deliver them. It was a message of God coming to work on their behalf. And ultimately, it was a message of the coming Christ. Because it culminates in verse 6, For unto us a child is born. This was meant to be a, a shining message of hope and the agonizing despair of the world around them. And what he wanted them to know, what he wants us to know, is that the Messiah, the Christ, would be the source and the giver of hope. So for us in this day, what we have to know is Jesus is the source of hope who gives us hope. Jesus is the source of hope who gives us hope. Now, there are four ways that Jesus gives us hope in this passage. And what is interesting, what I like about it, is it's not just Jesus gives these things, but He, he replaces. Right? So in this passage, as they come to this time, they are somewhat despairing. But now God gives them hope for despair. And all throughout this passage, God takes away one thing to give them something better. Right? So ways Jesus gives us hope... He gives us light for darkness. Right? The, in, in verses 1 and 2, it talks about them sitting in, in days of gloom. They are sitting in, in deep darkness. But those days would not last forever. A day would come in which darkness and despair would be a thing of the past. As the Assyrians launched their attacks onto the land of Judah, they came in primarily through the land of Naphtali and Zebulun. They had felt the, the worst parts of their wrath. And they had been so totally conquered that what would happen is they would stay a land of the Gentiles. Really, what was happening was those lands would be so conquered by, by Gentiles that they would not typically become a place where Jewish people would ever live again. It would be a land that would languish for, for centuries in deep spiritual 
darkness. And that's what was coming. That's what was going on. But it wouldn't last forever. For the day was coming. And when someone would come and he would bring light into their darkness. These people that were going to walk right now in darkness. They would see a great light. That the people in the land of Naphtali. That they would have a great light would shine upon them. Now if you're familiar with the ministry of Jesus. You know Matthew 4 records the start of his ministry. He goes into the wilderness. He's tempted by the devil. He overcomes by quoting scripture. He comes out and he starts his earthly ministry. And he starts his earthly ministry in Galilee of the nations. And as he starts his ministry in Galilee, Matthew says this was intentional. Because he was in Galilee, he was in Zebulon, he was in Naphtali. And Matthew says this is what was done to fulfill What was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. And he then quotes these verses. Jesus went into those spiritually dark parts of the world. And he took his light. And dispelled it. He gave them light. For their darkness. Jesus is the great darkness dispelling light. Jesus came to give light to those who are held In the bondage of darkness and death. Jesus came to give light to those who are constantly living under the shadow of death. Scripture often uses darkness as a symbol for evil. For sin. And for just a general lack of knowledge about God. Jesus is the source of hope who gives us hope. By trading, taking our darkness and giving us his light. Jesus said... I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The picture of walking in darkness there is sort of a stumbling along. Not really knowing where you're going or what you're supposed to be doing. Living in the darkness of sin, but not knowing your sin is an offense against God. It is a picture of not knowing Jesus, who He is or or what He has done on our behalf. And that's how we all are naturally. Apart from Christ, we live in darkness. We stumble along not knowing what to do or how to do it. We don't know who Jesus is. We don't know what He has done. We don't see our sin as a problem. We don't understand it is an offense against Almighty and a Holy God. But Jesus came so we would not have to live this way. We wouldn't have to stumble along in darkness, but we could have the light of life. This means we can understand spiritual truths. We can know the reality of our sin and what an offense it is against a holy God. We can know who Jesus is and what He has done to deliver us from that. We can be righteous and holy and pure. We don't have to stumble along and grope through life wondering what to do. What on earth am I here for? We have answers to these things. Jesus came to give us His light. So that we would not have to live in spiritual darkness. Without Jesus, all we have is spiritual darkness. And if we are to have any hope at all apart from Jesus, it is limited to this life. What hope is that? What do we place our hope in in this life? 
the economy, in our nation, in our political system, in our party, in, in our finances, in our health. All of those can be taken just like that. In this, we live in spiritual darkness. We are limited by what we can have for hope. It is ultimately limited by us or what other people can do from us. So we stumble through life, going from one thing to another, hoping this will fix it. This will give me the life that I need. This will bring me out of darkness. But it doesn't. And it never will. Only Jesus can bring us out of spiritual darkness and into light so that we can have the hope we're meant to have. Apart from Jesus, we will never live in anything but spiritual darkness. But those who follow Him, they are meant to live in light because Jesus is light. Apart from Jesus, the hope we find in this world, it is essentially a hopeless existence. That is not the way any of us are intended to live. Jesus is the source of hope who gives us hope by taking our darkness and giving us His light. Jesus gives us light for darkness. Jesus also gives us joy for misery. Verse 3. Says thou hast multiplied the nation, increased our joy. They joy before thee according to joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Now the idea of multiplying the nation is important because the ravages of war had taken a toll. What happens when a land is invaded by a superior force? People die. And not just soldiers. There are always, there's always collateral damage. In the best of circumstances where they try to limit it, there are civilians, collateral people who are killed. That always happens. And in a day like this where they don't care about collateral damage, they would go into a village and they would raise it and kill everybody, man, woman, and children, burn it to the ground. So the nation had been depleted. The nation had been murdered. And the people were demoralized. Imagine. Imagine an invasion. In the towns surrounding us. Most everybody we knew in in Hooker. Goodwell, Texhoma, Hardesty. They had been killed. What kind of effect would that have upon us? We would be demoralized by it. It would... Bring us down. That's the point. That's the way they were. But there is a promise given. The promise is twofold. Plus, first, the, the population would multiply. But secondly, there would be joy brought to the people. The Messiah would bring joy even in the midst of misery. Now, I love how it describes The joy. First, they joy before thee. So it is a joy before the Lord. It's the idea that joy God gives, the joy Jesus gives, would would lead us to praise Him and to worship Him. 
in light of the salvation He has given us. Right? It is a, a joy in Him and a joy that leads us to Him. But it's also a, a joy of the harvest according to the joy of joy in harvest. Now, those of you that, that farm or have farmed, you have an idea of what's being pictured here. You know the joy you feel when you bring the crops in and they have produced abundantly. And you've got the harvest in and it's an abundance. Now they live in an agrarian society. Life rises and falls on the harvest. There's no supplemental income. There's no crop insurance. There, there's nothing. Their financial future wholly depended on the crop coming in and it producing enough. So can you imagine the, the joy of a good harvest that it brought to their lives? He says that's the kind of joy the Messiah would bring. That sort of an abundant, oh my goodness, this is great kind of a joy. And then he describes it as a soldier when they divide the spoil. The, the dividing the spoil is not the essential aspect. What kind of soldiers divide the spoil? The victors or the losers? The victors. So it's the joy of victory, of overcoming. So the joy we can have it is a, a victory of overcoming, of being victorious over our enemies. I mean, just think about it in football. Is there joy when the team wins? Now that in, is increasingly multiplied in the joy we feel over victory over our spiritual enemies. And that is the kind of, of joy the Messiah brings. These are, are powerful pictures of joy, the kind of joy we can have in our lives because of Jesus. I would say, as I look at our world, joy is a missing element for many. That there aren't a lot of really happy people in the world. People just seem to be miserable, unhappy, joyless. And that is not the occasional, but consistent. Jesus came to give us joy for misery. So a lack of a joy is, is always a tragic thing, particularly in the life of a believer. Because we should be the most joyful people in the world. And there should be joy instead of misery. I, I like this particular verse. There's so many verses that talk about joy, but this is a great one. Peter says, whom, talking about Jesus, you have not seen, but you love Him. And whom, though now you see Him, not yet believe. You rejoice with joy unspeakable, full of glory. Do we rejoice with joy unspeakable, full of glory? But joy unspeakable means we just can't fully express it. We, we, can't, we don't have the vocabulary to explain how much joy we have in our life because of Jesus. Do, do we have that? Because we should. We should have that. And what's great about Peter's passage, the reason I like it, is because of the context. 
He's not talking to a people who are going through the best of times in the world. He's not talking to a people who are prosperous, living in their big homes and their ivory towers. Telling them, look at how great life is. Joy, with inexpressible joy. Instead, they are suffering. The verses immediately before it, he talks about fiery trials they are experiencing. This is actually the worst time of their life. And yet, in the midst of that, they still have joy unspeakable that is full of glory. Can you imagine going through the absolute worst time of your life and still being filled with a joy so great you cannot fully explain it? It's possible because of Jesus. We see this all throughout the New Testament. Think about the apostles in the book of Acts. They would get arrested. They would get a big time beat down. They'd be told not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. What did they do? Did they leave poor pitiful me? I just don't understand. They never did. They left praising God. That they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Think about Paul. The book of Philippians, he repeatedly talks about rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. He talks about his, his own joy. And Paul wasn't writing from an ivory tower. He was writing from a Roman prison. He wasn't 100% certain he was going to be released. As he wrote the book of Philippians, he wasn't sure would this end in a release or would it end in beheading. He didn't know. But even with that uncertainty, even with the wrongful imprisonment, he had joy because of Jesus. This is the same joy you and I can have. Right? What the Bible describes there and in other places, it's real. I mean, that is a real thing. That's not like a, a coffee cup verse. That's not something that you look at and be like, that would be awesome if it were true. It is true. It is real. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, we can have joy unspeakable, full of glory, no matter what. We can because of Jesus. And we should because of Jesus. Jesus is our source of hope who gives us hope by giving us joy for misery. This isn't to say there aren't hard times, difficult times. This isn't to say we won't wrestle with discouragement and issues like that. It's not. Paul even talks about at one point that he's sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. What it's saying is, there is something that can give us a joy that's greater than our misery. That no matter how bad it is, there is something greater that is good and brings joy into our lives. Dear friend, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and there is no joy in your life, something is wrong. There is meant to be joy from and through Jesus. It's part of the hope He gives us. 
Jesus gives us joy for misery, but he also gives us peace for conflict. In verse 4, it says, For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor is in the day of Midian. He's making a reference to a a story from the book of of Judges, Judges 7, when the Midianites conquered, uh, had conquered and were oppressing Israel. And God worked through a man named Gideon to defeat the Midianites. If you're familiar with the story, you know it was a pretty miraculous kind of thing. When they raised an army, it was a big army, but it was too big. God said, if I give you the victory now, you'll say, oh, look at what we have done. So God whittled the army down to 300 men. So Israel would have to recognize it was God who had given them the victory. And Isaiah is saying, just as God had gave Gideon victory over the Midianites, he will give victory to his people. But he expresses the time when it is. This isn't so much a, a time of immediate victory. He says, for every battle... The warriors with confused noise and his garment rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel for the fire. And what he's saying at the last is, and his garments rolled in blood would be fuel for the fire. He's saying that there will come a time when the victory is so complete, the peace is so complete, that all the garments of war, all the weapons of war, they'll be destroyed. Sort of like what it says in other places about turning our swords into plowshares. There will be no more war. They will not teach war, nor there will be war. It pictures a time when there will be absolute peace on the earth. Jesus came to to bring that kind of a peace. But, now here's the thing. Do we see that right now? No, we don't see that right now. So does this mean Jesus failed? Of course not. Many times, Old Testament prophecies about Jesus had, had multiple fulfillments. There was something that it meant right then to the people. And there was something it meant at the return of at the first coming of Jesus, and many times it would be something it meant at the second coming of Jesus. That's what Isaiah is referring to here. There is a there is a measure of peace, and we'll talk about that in a second. But the peace he's primarily referring to here is the peace that comes in the end, because there is a day coming in which there will be no more war and there will be no more weapons. There will be a time of absolute peace. Right? The Bible says that in that day God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. There will be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. Neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. In this life, there is just suffering. There just is. In this life, no matter how faithfully we live for Jesus, how, how much we believe, how, how devoted we are, There's going to be tears in our eyes. There's going to be death in our lives. There's going to be sorrow. There's going to be pain. There's going to be bad things. We just live in a fallen, sin-cursed world where bad things are going to happen. And that would be hopeless if this world was all there was. If we lived and then we died and there was nothingness after Good cow, what a miserable existence we would live. But that's not the way it is. This world is going to pass away. Jesus is going to usher in a time of peace. And in that time, there will be no tears, no death, no sorrow, no pardon, no wars, no tribulations, no hardships. No suffering. 
can stir a hope within us. In some ways, the suffering of this life, rather than make us question God, what it ought to do is make us long for that day. It ought to make us look forward to the day when this comes to pass. Make it so. Come, Lord Jesus. We are meant for more than here and now. And because there is this day coming, we can have hope instead of despair. Because the troubles and tribulations of this life will give way to peace at some point. One day Jesus will return. And when He does, He will set right all that has gone wrong. And He will usher in a day of peace so amazing our minds cannot fully comprehend it. Because we've never really experienced a time of peace, have we? I mean, even if there's not been times of, of war, the world isn't really a peaceful place right now, is it? There's crime, there's violence, there's suffering, there's sickness, there's death. But that's not always the way it'll be. Jesus is returning. And so there is, there is hope instead of despair because there is peace Instead of conflict. There is peace instead of pain. There is a day coming. We can have hope instead of despair. Because we know in this life we will have tribulations. But there is a day coming. And all of these things will be gone. Jesus is our source of hope. Who gives us hope. By giving us peace. For conflict. But lastly Jesus gives himself for us. Verse 6 is probably the most familiar passage in this chapter. Possibly one of the most familiar passages in the Old Testament referring to the coming Christ. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. The Mighty God. The Everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. Several ways Jesus is described. He's described as a son who is born, or a child who is born, and a son who is given. Most commentaries that I have referenced and looked at said this describes his humanity and his deity. It is a picture of the incarnation. He is a, a son who is born, or a child who is born, but he is also a son who is given. Born of a woman, but he is given from God. The idea of a son pulls us back to Isaiah 7 and 14, but the promise that the Messiah would be born of a virgin and called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Matthew quotes uh, this verse when he describes the birth of Jesus to Mary. So Jesus is a child born and a son given to us. But he's also a wonderful counselor. You know, the Bible teaches Jesus lived as we lived. He, he lived in the world that we live in. Suffered temptations and tribulations and hardships just like we do. He was unjustly accused and he was unjustly tried and he was executed in a, in a terrible way. The main difference between Jesus and us isn't in this life, isn't that he didn't experience what we experienced. The difference is in how he responded. Jesus was tempted like as we are. But without sin. 
Jesus was wrongly accused, as we often are, but opened not his mouth and trusted himself to God. Jesus always did exactly what he should have done in every instance of life. In every tribulation, in every temptation, in every act, in every choice, he made the right one. He always said what the Father wanted him to do. He said, I always do those things that please my Father. And what this means in regard to Jesus being our wonderful counselor is that he knows how to make the right choices. He knows how to help us do the right things. There are some things... If you were to come to me and ask for advice on it, I could give advice. If I've not experienced what you've experienced, my advice, it'll be general at best. It can't be overly specific. Because I don't, I don't know what you know. I've not gone through what you've gone through. But Jesus has gone through what we've gone through. And in that instance, He always made the right choices. He always did the right things. Hebrews 4 says that we can now go to Him, our High Priest, And we can find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need as the wonderful counselor. He can always guide us and give us advice. Show us how to do what needs to be done in any circumstance we might face. He's also the mighty God. Not only does this solidify the fact the Messiah would be God and not just a man. The Hebrew word for mighty. It carries with it the idea of being a hero. Or a champion. So it's more than just powerful God, although that's meant. It's victorious God, the champion God, the one who conquers enemies. You know, Jesus came to conquer enemies on our behalf. But 1 Corinthians 15 and 20 and Revelation 1 18 says Jesus conquered the enemy of death on our behalf. Hebrews 2, Colossians 2 tell us Jesus conquered Satan on our behalf. Romans 6, 1 John 3, 6 through 9 tells us Jesus conquered sin on our behalf. John 8, 36, Galatians 5, 1, Jesus conquered bondage and slavery on our behalf. Romans 8, 1, Colossians 2, 13 and 14, Jesus conquered condemnation on our behalf. He's our our mighty God. He is our our champion that has conquered death in our place so we don't have to fear Him. He is our champion who conquered Satan so we're not enslaved and deceived by Him any longer. He conquered sin so we don't have to give in to sin and be enslaved by it any longer. He conquered bondage so we don't have to be enslaved by anything, not the law, not legalism, not sin, not false doctrine. Whom the Son has set free is free indeed. He's conquered condemnation. So you and I as believers, we don't have to walk around and wonder. I'm going to heaven when I die. We are free from condemnation. Forever free. Jesus conquered that on our behalf. He's the everlasting Father. While Jesus is eternal, this isn't the major focus of this name. Instead, the emphasis lies on the fact Jesus will love His people as a father loves His children. He will care for His people as a father cares for His children. He will comfort. He will correct. He will lead. 
He will discipline. He will do all of those things, but in a, a perfect way. He will do it in the way a father should do it. And he does it always out of his deep concern for us and our spiritual well-being. We all, as believers, we have a good father who loves us, cares for us, who guides us, who will correct us, but does it in love. He is the Prince of Peace. Jesus brings peace to the human heart. Two ways primarily. First is He reconciles us to God. The Bible says apart from Jesus we are the enemies of God. We we make ourselves His enemies by our evil thoughts and our evil actions. And we can't undo that. We can't bring peace. Jesus did. Jesus brought peace between us and God so that we don't have to be at enmity with Him. And then He comforts us in our trials and hardships so that we can have the peace of God. Jesus said, My peace I give to you. And in this life you will have trouble. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We can have peace in the midst of the worst conflicts of Jesus. He is our Prince of Peace. Jesus is the source of hope who gives us hope by giving Himself for us. He came to this world He took on human flesh so He could be our wonderful counselor. I mean, that's His desire. You ever thought about that? Jesus wants to counsel you guide you. He wants to be your wonderful counselor. He came as the mighty God and He wants to be your champion. He wants us to live in victory over those things. He came to be our everlasting Father and He wants us to see Him that way, to trust Him that way, to love Him that way. He came to be our Prince of Peace and He wants to give us peace for our anxieties, the stresses and the troubles we have. We can have hope because Jesus is the source of hope who gives Himself for us. So let me ask you this morning, are you a person of hope? Could you say hope is a defining characteristic of your life. Do you pray in hope? Is there a sense of anticipation after you pray, God is going to do something in response to your prayer? Do you live in hope? Is there a sense of expectation of God working in you, through you, and for you to accomplish His will in the world? Do you give hope? I mean, when people leave you, do they feel drained or refreshed? Do they feel encouraged or discouraged? Do they feel despair or are they inspired to hope? Is our church a beacon of hope? 
do we who make up the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church, do we come with a sense of anticipation of what God is going to do in us and through us and for us when we gather here? If we were to ask the people of our community, they say, at Northridge Free Will Baptist Church, you can find hope, help, and healing in Christ. Are we truly a beacon of hope? We should be able to say yes to all of these things. If we can't say yes, it reveals a deep need in our lives for Jesus. Because He is the source of hope who gives us hope. So I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'll ask you again, are you a person of hope? I'm not asking if you've ever prayed a prayer or if you've ever been baptized. I'm asking if you are a person of hope. If not, you need Jesus to come to you and be your source of hope who gives you hope. It may be you're a believer, truly, genuinely saved. But you've stopped making progress in your relationship with Jesus. And so you need to you need him to draw you deeper and closer. So hope flows from him into you. It may be you're a believer. But you've strayed and you've let sin come between you and Jesus. You need to let Jesus draw you back to the narrow way. It may be you've never personally trusted in Jesus as your Savior. And if so, that's the decision you have to make. You must come to Jesus and let Him save you. Whatever it may be, you need Jesus to be your source of hope who gives hope. If this is you, you say, I I need the hope, the light, the joy, the peace Jesus gives. I need Jesus more deeply in my life. Raise your hand. Right now as a way to respond to the message. As a way to call on Jesus. As a way to say, Jesus, take my hand and grab me and draw me closer to you. I need you today, Jesus. Call on Jesus in this time. Ask Him to come to you and give you His hope for your despair. Ask Him to give you His light for your darkness. Ask Him to give you His joy for your misery. His peace for your conflict. Ask Him just give me you, Jesus. Just give me Jesus. We're going to take a few minutes and pray. You can come to the altars to pray. You can stay where you are. All we want to do at this time is spend time seeking the Lord.